Hello, it's Richard Borden again in this mini-series podcast on getting to better together. In the introduction to this series, I presented the arguments of why we believe this idea of A, getting to better, and B, having to do that together, uh, was important. And among the other issues that I tackled was the importance of judgment and listening to people's answers to questions like, what does constitute better? Who decides what's better? Who has to act? And obviously, therefore, it is important for us to hear different voices in relation to questions like that. I'm delighted to have a conversation this morning with Maria Rossetti. She is both a professor of marketing at the University of the Sunshine Coast and director of the Indigenous and Transcultural Research Centre here. So in my my first introductory episode, I mentioned the importance of worldview. That is our particular sets of beliefs and assumptions about how the world operates, how we know how the world operates, and so on. And I made the point that I found it really important to understand that, A, I have a particular set of worldviews, and that others have different worldviews, and that that can lead to considerable conflict. And this is particularly so when it comes to intercultural affairs. Now, Maria uh, stood me up this morning and said, maybe that's not important. Maybe it's not important to have worldviews or to know about them. We have them. So challenge me, Maria. (laughs) Thank you, Richard. I guess the challenge I had was this idea of, do we need to be conscious of our worldviews? Because many of us are not. And it's whether that actually is a problem. You know, ignorance is bliss. Um, and then when you are conscious of your worldviews, that brings with it a burden for a lot of people because you can't unsee what you've seen. And that might be something that, you know, torments or inhibits people over their time because they're consciously overthinking or thinking, why am I doing what I'm doing, um, rather than this sort of connection between cognition and action and, and, and sort of that being an intimate relationship. Um, so, yeah, that was the challenge I had is 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 knowing better than not knowing um, and whether we should consider it. Maybe there's just not a one-size-fits-all approach for everybody. So what would that actually mean in practice? If, if we take something like nature and people's recognition of, of nature as either something over there, uh, out there, or the alternative, we are an intrinsic part of nature and therefore we do what we do because we're nature, mm. as it were. So what I see with that is just that bipolar. It's one or the other, whereas I think it could be both, interlap and intersect, uh, and also that at different points in our life we may perceive it to be one and not the other. Um, as children, for example, we may perceive ourselves to be distinct and different, but as we become older we may see that we are part of it simply as a function of the human experience of being on the planet longer. You know, I think as an Aboriginal person, you grow into your Aboriginality. And so as you become older, as I've found, as I've become older, certain elements and aspects have been foregrounded that weren't there. They were perhaps there hidden in the background. But as I've become older, they've become obvious and clear to me. Um, I just don't think it's that hard and fast rules. I think that our worldviews change over time and perhaps through our own reflections and reflective practice, perhaps through trauma and things that are put upon us, 
Um, but there's always some circumstance that means that they change. Yeah, I, I relate strongly to both of those, uh, both to trauma and reflection. Um, Tell me more about your own personal experiences, your own recognition of your self-Aboriginality, as it were. Oh. Um, so I was born in central Queensland in a small town. My parents had uh, were from northern Queensland. Um, they had moved away. They wanted to start their own life in this, this space. So I didn't grow up on country um, and I didn't grow up in culture because of that separation and that choice of it too. For a lot of Aboriginal people, that's not the case. There's fractured histories. There's stolen generations. There is no way to connect who you are to any past. You just know that you are, and but what that means can be self-defined. Um, so it comes down to that sense of the ascribed characteristic of, of what it is to be Aboriginal is in, for me, self-defined. Um, and, and I think for others, that's been their journey as well too. Um, but as you get older, you come into it more because I think you've been on the planet long enough to start to really recognise racism and systemic barriers that you never, that were, were perhaps always there, that were always there, but you just never recognised them for what they were. And you also find voice. You become more confident. You see things that weren't there. So that's that sense of awakening and being woke. Um, but placing, but that's also a process. And I think that that comes, for me, has come with age. It hasn't been there from the outset because of my background and, um, you know, and how, you know, the sort of circumstances of my birth. Mm, thank you. People recognise trauma very easily, uh, COVID-19 witness, um, that when things aren't going the way we expect them to or we hope them to, then we can recognise that as, as trauma. Uh, the issue of reflection, however, uh, seems to me less common. So that people can experience trauma, but then either not be able to or not be willing to to reflect. Yeah. And I think even just this year has shown us that the extreme trauma of COVID, as you identified, we realised the systems around us, um, first of all, that there were systems around us that support a status quo. And I think the vast population then realised how fragile they were, but also how dependent we were on them. And our own almost sort of Pavlovian response to, to you know, when tax cuts were announced and ways to stimulate the economy and 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 just as we should we went out and purchased or as expected we went out and purchased and all the rest of it um i think the interesting thing about reflection is that for some people it perhaps comes naturally and that may be a personality trait you know it may be um something that they've done regularly uh, for others i don't think it does I also think it's the 21st century. We're so distracted. We're pulled in so many different directions and we willingly go a lot of the time. We're moving at such fast pace that we don't have time to reflect on who we are and what we do and why we do. Um, and I think sometimes that, as I mentioned before, like with over one's life course, you just perhaps have more opportunities and spaces in between to reflect. And also this time of the year, around the end of the year and the beginning of the year, we have, I think, moments of reflection where people do take a little bit of time to sort of look at it. But just because you reflect and identify things that you want to change or things that would be better, doesn't mean you actually do it. And I think that's just the nature of the human. Um, we may know what's right or we may identify things that we need to do but we don't necessarily go about it as a, a marketing person i can guarantee you that that's that's pretty much what we look at in marketing and consumer behavior that what people say they will do is often very different to what they will actually do and and why is that 
Um, there is, seems to be a disconnect, this uh, disconnection between intention and actual behaviour. Um, there's always some sort of mitigating factor that comes into it. And I think maybe perhaps it's an optimism, perhaps it's an overpromising, um, and perhaps it, you know, it could be also a lack of, of self-awareness. Um, people may be expressing a desire that they have versus you know, the need to actually take steps to, to purchase something or buy something or donate money or give blood. Um, there's always some inhibiting factor that sits in the middle of it all. It's what we call in marketing the black box. And that's, that's for a reason we actually really haven't unpicked it yet. Right. In terms of, of again, your own personal journey, so you started marketing without any deep sense of your Aboriginality. They came together, presumably, as you reflected more. And where did that then take you in terms of a new trajectory? Yeah. So I think Aboriginality was always there because I'm conspicuously Aboriginal um, and grew up and obviously always knew I was, always have identified, and, and that's been the case. Um, but I think I moved into marketing because I was so intrigued by sort of this idea of creativity coming together with with strategy. And no one ever said I couldn't. No one ever said, okay, most Indigenous students go into certain degrees, into teaching or into to social work, for example, or into nursing. Um, so I never had those constraints around me. So I was free to literally dream about what did I like, what did I want to do, and that's what I did, and that's when I pursued it. It's quite interesting because it probably wasn't until decades later that I realised that, oh, actually, no, there sort of was an expectation that you went into certain degrees. The only real part of it was that I could give back, was that whatever I learned and whatever knowledge and skills I had, I could then give back to community in my own way as a way of helping others. Um, uh, other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples and communities. So I think that was always a part of what I was doing and why I was doing it. Um, and Indigenous businesses have grown tenfold and are hugely successful around the country. They just don't seem to get the visibility um, that they should have and that they deserve. The, the sense of, um, of artistry, of creativity, uh, that I certainly associate with, with Aborigines um, has always been a bit of a mystery to me that there's this innate sense of creativity. Uh, every Aboriginal I have ever met, uh, not just here, but also in, in um, places like uh, Canada and Central America, South America, Africa, and so on, uh, that whilst the expression of creativity differs, of course, there are certain characteristics in common of, of dance, of music, uh, and of visual art. Um, do you have any comments about why that might be so? I actually don't. I just I think for me, probably because it's innate and it's embedded, it's, it's something I can't explain. It's just there. Um, and so it, it comes out in really interesting ways. Also the ability to see connections um, across different items. So I'll be in a meeting, there'll be 10 agenda items and I can see how the first one connects with the third one, connects with the last one. And I'll be the only person in the room that, that draws those three things together and says, you know, these things could be solved by A and B. And it's that sort of thinking that I never realised until sort of as I got you know into my 30s was like actually you know that is indigenous thinking that is that holism that is that synthesis the ability to see process um, and to see connections that aren't visible perhaps well that others couldn't see as being visible too but I think with creativity it's 
a form, I don't know, it's, it's a safe place, it's a peace place. You go into it and you can create and design and, and identify. And I think it's probably one of the things in my professional career that have been advantageous um, in my teaching. I have very creative assessment tasks which draw out the best in the students um, and challenge them and push them that little bit further. Um, and I just seem to be able to do that year on year and, and time on time. Um, but because it's so embedded, it's probably nothing that um, I can explain consciously. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. But you've been aware of. Oh, yeah. Yep. Forever? Absolutely. And that's probably what got me into marketing. I love colours and images and the whole visual elements of design. And then obviously with ads and music and the like, um, and the way that these things could come together to make you or to provoke different feelings and different points of escape, I think, throughout the day. I've moved into an area called social marketing, which is focusing on behaviour change to improve people's quality of life. And so I very much focus on ways, um, my main passion area is about widening participation, increasing participation of people from disadvantaged groups in higher education, which includes Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Um, and I think what I've been able to draw across from marketing is this idea of how can you create persuasive, engaging, inviting pieces and snapshots of information that in that moment can change people's worldview, can change people's outlook to stimulate and prompt a change, or even just to get them to think oh, or grab their attention. That's a perfect connection to getting to better together, I mean, the whole notion of, of better. It's interesting, lots of people have terms of worldview, a worldview about marketing uh, as something that's per, like avaricious, that that we've actually ceded our responsibilities to this nebulous thing called the market. I can't make a decision anymore. The market will do so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think the main thing is that among marketing, look, marketing needs rebranding. There is an absolute stigma around marketing um, and no doubt about that. Um, and it probably doesn't do justice to what marketing is about and what it can do. You know, it's based in anthropology, in social psychology, yeah, and there's economic rationalist aspects to it as well. But increasingly amongst social marketers, there's also we bring into our teaching and, and into our research this social consciousness and ethics uh, around and morality, around what is right, what we should do, and what are the actual limits um, uh, of what we do. Uh, why we do what we do. Uh, but I, that notion that we're sort of absconding from responsibility, we're all care and no responsibility, and we just say, okay, the market will decide. Um, I often start my lectures by saying, you know, we don't all you know, drink from the fountain um, of, of economic rationalism. We don't all drink from the fountain of Adam Smith, and we uh, increasingly have found a way to sort of, I think, inject this 21st century thinking and this sense of morality into it. I know that our students like it. I know that students love it when we talk about social marketing, we talk about big social issues and how we can use our tools and techniques for the greater good. Um, and that's where we see our students thrive and that's where they want to go. And that's the modern day business too. I mean, the reality is this business models have changed hugely um, and there is a moral and social agenda. It used to just be the triple bottom line, but I think it's just embedded in, in what we do. We should all do something that gives back. We should all be doing something that um, I guess in some ways has positive consequences for others other than our customers and other than our shareholders. You, you talked uh just now about interconnectivity uh, and the notion, if you will, of 
of not three separate things like like people, planet, and, and profit, uh, but a synthesis of those into something else. Mm. What might that something else be, do you think? Oh, nameless, really. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's just a good point because it sort of brings up that idea is, you know, um, are things all comprised of parts and is the sum of all parts equal to the whole? Um, I don't know. I think that we're perhaps moving into a different stage of being in that there is growing people i think are becoming more comfortable with complexity um, i think sometimes we break things into its component parts like people and profit or the four p's or whatever because they're pedagogically easy to teach we, we use them because it's easy to communicate it doesn't mean they are everything that's in there and i think that when your understanding matures and develops you start to understand the complexity of all these types of intersecting points and also how when they're all joined up and they're all synthesized together the, the sum is sorry it is greater than the sum of all its parts that that are a part of it too um i'm not quite sure because i i find i myself struggle with that space between breaking things into its component parts that mechanistic view and that helps to communicate um but then at the same time understanding that what we're dealing with is phenomena that are far greater uh, than, than how we've deconstructed them um, and maybe it's deconstruction and reconstruction. I haven't resolved that within myself and within my, my own worldview. And I think all uh, worldviews, plural, um, because I think that in a professional sort of setting and in a teaching setting, that worldview looks a certain way. Uh, in a personal setting, it's quite different. Um, and in my own sort of professional writings, writing provocations and things like that, it is a little bit different as well because the audience is different. And I think it sort of links back to that first question about meeting people where they're at. Some people have are very conscious of their worldview, are very woke to how it's changed over time or where they sit uh, and are reflective, whereas others aren't. So I guess I write for audiences um, that way in terms of trying to meet them where they're at um, uh, and also not to push my, you know, where I'm at in my life is 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 my business and mine and where they're at right. is there. So it's about not interrupting their journey and not taking away their innocence in some ways if, if they're not ready for it. Life brings enough uh, into us to to make it a trauma or whatnot or situations to make us rethink what we are and uh, why we do what we do. A wise uh, American philosopher once said that maturity is the ability to hold to different worldviews at the same time, preferably conflicting. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, I found out in my own life journey that yeah. I, I uh, seem to be able to hold different worldviews. And in fact, I, I worked in the United States for almost a decade and I was offered a job there uh, on the grounds that I was able to synthesize. I had the ability. And the president of the university said, it's interesting. He said, I've noticed this with other Australians. He said, we Americans are extraordinarily good analysts, but we actually lack the capacity to synthesize. And you seem to have this particular competency of synthesis. Um, again, my my experience of, of working with indigenous peoples around the world is that indeed that's so, that there is uh, not, not Australians, but I mean indigenous people generally, have this much greater capacity to synthesize. Mm. Uh, and maybe in some senses, that's been a fault and a lack of analysis. And uh, maybe it would be good conflictually if we could actually have both and then deal with them. Yeah, yeah. And I think it sort of comes back to that notion of the, I guess that dominant knowledge system sort of looks a certain way and it's been designed that way. And the way it's been designed is that is sort of that indigenous synthesis view and holism view is at the margins and it's only engaged with infrequently 
Uh, I recently did a presentation where they were and, and showed what's called systems thinking. And I crossed it out and, and it says traditional thinking and systems thinking. And I crossed it out and said, this is Aboriginal thinking. This idea of holism and synthesis and process um, is, is it? And then I, I showed a model of Indigenous thinking and the focus on the nonverbal and the, the visual displays of, of, you know, to encourage behaviour change. Um, and I think it was quite new to most of the audience because they hadn't ever considered it that it always has been and always will be Indigenous ways of knowing and being um, that are out there. But it's certainly something, again, as an embodied element, it's not something that you, <laughs> you consciously do. It's just sort of something that, is a natural part of you that comes out. Um, it's not always recognised, I guess, in um, different workplaces and it's perhaps not capitalised on. Um, and it's quite interesting because most universities around the country these days are very much focused on critical and creative thinking and empowerment and those two big graduate attributes bring together this idea of the ability to synthesise um, to see disparate parts, identify how to bring them together. Um, and it's like bricolage. It's this idea of finding what's around you, piecing it together, stitching it together, patchworking it together into something that works. And that sort of pragmatism is perhaps what underpins synthesis. And it's interesting when you were saying they're your own experiences in different countries. And perhaps it's simply been a case of Australia being, you know, small population, large geographic area. We've all had to survive. We've all had to find our ways um, to create our worlds around us. And so that bricolage approach of piecing together what we have um, and making it work in making it fit for purpose is perhaps something that sort of underpins that sort of thinking. I wonder if that Upon reflection, I wonder if that isn't a good way of talking more about what it is we could learn interculturally, yeah. of saying, you know, look, there, there are some really profound issues here. It's not just art or coal fire burning or, or whatever. Yeah. It's that there is this notion of a fundamental human capacity, yeah. uh, the difference between what we have done I think in education in the so-called Western world, which is a focus on analysis yeah. and numbers, we count stuff all the time, uh, compared to this extraordinary qualitative ability to, to synthesize. Maybe that's uh, a new point of entry in terms of this debate of reconciliation, for instance. Yeah. Um, and I think it fits in with that recognition that there's more than one knowledge system, right. that there is a dominant one, and that recognition that universities as an education system perpetuate it over time that we're taught we teach our research students for example about um you know how to do statistical analysis um our journals will only publish papers you know i have a preference anyway for papers that have numbers in them rather than those that have words in them so there's this whole group of systems around that prevent an opportunity to showcase synthesis and what it means um, and as a result in some ways we educate it out of people um, and then we don't have an outlet for people to express it so that it can be valued and can be seen so I think it's those intersecting sort of systems that come together that silence it in many ways mm. and that's why these types of discussions that's why I love the rise of podcasts because there's something authentic in them and there's something raw. And in that moment, that's where those people were. And it allows for explanations that are just, I don't know if they're possible in the English language and possible on, in, on paper or in print. 
the point about language is extraordinarily important, isn't it? I mean, there are lots of things that that we are so limited in, in any particular language that we can't shift to another one, and therefore we can't understand even the premise. I mean, I think of words in Spanish like simpatico or in German zeitgeist. I mean, they're just words that have no English equivalent, at least that I know of. Mm -hmm. And that must be particularly true uh, of Aboriginal languages, and I've emphasized languages, mm -hmm. um, that uh, in essence their vocabulary was so different. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, a lack of exposure to, to machines and other things, uh, science itself. Um, what are your views on where we can go with such differences in language? Yeah. And I think language is such an interesting topic because it constrains and determines how we express it. And English language conventions, uh, you know, the emphasis on active voice rather than passive voice. For example, um, in our own software, it, it doesn't like us writing in passive voice. It identifies it. And what that does, though, is it changes the nature of the dialogue it, it, and it changes the nature of, of our expression and I do sometimes myself even in my writing find it difficult to express what I'm trying what I'm thinking about or the meaning of what I'm talking about and so I've probably I've gone to the other extreme of becoming as I've been described as a wordsmith and it's like that's simply because I can't find the words in the language and the combination of them that explain what this phenomena that explain what is, is going on. And so there is a need for some elaboration to grab your attention because if you write everything in lay speak, then you you sort of skim across the surface and you don't get to understand the phenomena itself. Um, but this idea of the English language being a system that's hidden in the obvious and most of us do not understand the constraints that it puts on our expression, um, our understanding, our comprehension, like you said, about understanding certain premises, um, is I think such a fundamental aspect of it. And I think that, you know, that that perhaps is why there is biases in the literature is simply that we can't express what we're trying to explain and what we mean uh, by it. Uh, and sometimes you see in certain sort of fields or areas of research, the same questions being asked over and over again and the same answers being given um, slightly phrased differently. But the fact is, is people often don't connect the, the meaning up as being the same, the same sort of thing. So I think language constrains not only our ability to express what we see in phenomena around us, but our ability then to communicate it to others. Uh, one of the aspects, I'm a Celt. I, I come from uh, the west of, of England, although I shouldn't say west of England, I'm, I'm west of England. Um, I'm, I'm Cornish, uh, born and bred. And one of the traditions of, of the Cornish, or two traditions really, one is storytelling and the other one is, is song. Um, I trained as a, just as I became a scientist in agriculture from a farming background, so I studied singing, um, not traditional singing that went on in our villages, but opera. And one of the things about that for me was that when you when you learn to sing formally, you don't move. Mm. And one of the things about again indigenous music is that singing and dancing go together. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I've spent hours standing there next to a piano thinking this is really foolish because I'm actually personally moved by the music and I want to move myself uh, around the place. And, and opera to me actually gives you that, that possibility so that you have yeah. visual art and movement and singing and, and uh, colour and movement, as Barry Humphreys once said. <laughs> uh, and that's one of the things to me, again, that, that I find incredibly appealing about Indigenous creativity, that dance uh, and singing come together. Yeah, because I, I, 
I don't think they're one dimensional. Mm. <laughs> they can't be. And the you know the heart in the head, you, you're winning people's hearts and minds, and and your own heart and mind through that process. So it's almost like you bring it together. Um, so for and I'll, I'll link it back. So linking when I teach social marketing, it's about hearts, minds, and hands. It's about winning people's hearts with in order to prompt change, their minds in order to do change, but their hands in order to actually to, to actually activate the change itself. So thinking, feeling, and doing, coming together in that sort of one point. And that's the sweet spot that brings about behaviour change and hopefully sustained behaviour change for people, you know, voluntarily to, to do those things. And I think just it was really interesting because I didn't ever notice that point like you said that you stand still in one place that you're not actually moving and singing at the same time um but i think again it's that synthesis it's that bringing together that things aren't mechanistic they're not parts that you then bolt on together but they are all one and of the same thing and i think the singing and the dancing together um apart from freedom of expression and actually being in touch with with the feeling and the thinking and the and and the sort of the singing at the same time, um, again, is that synthesis. Mm. It's that, mm. that natural state that things are together, not apart. <laughs> I have really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. I've gone all sorts mm -hmm. of different directions that I hadn't planned. <laughs> this just goes to show you shouldn't plan a conversation. That's probably a good thing. <laughs> no, this has been wonderful. Thank you. Thanks, Maria. Me. Come again. Thank you for listening to this episode of Getting to Better Together. I look forward to your company when next we have a conversation that exposes, as it were, people's views, their values, their beliefs in relation to how do we get to better together. Thank you and goodbye.